Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Well, good morning, church. At this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss the three to five-year-olds to their class for today. And uh, for the rest of us, today we are starting uh, the book of Luke. Um, And so we're going to be in this, we're going to be walking through Luke for... Honestly, probably about two years, uh, I I think, is is kind of the number that we're going to put on it. Uh, One, because we've already walked through Acts, which was also authored by Luke, um, and we were in it for about two years, and so uh, that's probably going to be the the MO for us here. Um, But this is going to be a great time uh, that we just walk through this, this entire book, this entire narrative. And so... Um, if you got your Bible, I want you to go and open them up to Luke 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 today. 1 through 4. And as you're turning there, I want to go ahead and, uh, and just pray for our, our time together in the Word. Father God, we begin by thanking you that Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, and that Luke faithfully wrote this orderly account on the facts about who Jesus is what he said, and what he did. Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to take the scriptures which you have inspired to be written to illuminate our understanding and to transform our lives. We thank you for seasoned mothers, new mothers, mothers-to-be, and future mothers who are in the waiting. We thank you. And we ask all these things in your great name. Amen. All right, as you can tell, I also am... Still kind of recovering from uh, an illness this last week, and so I'm nasally, uh, so you'll just have to uh, get over it. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but yes, I am nasally. So anyways, Luke 1, 1 through 4, um, we're just going to dive straight into it. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right, so that's one long sentence that we will be looking at today. And if you are taking notes... Uh, I'm going to give you kind of the outline that we're going to be covering. And so I want to show you four introductions. I want to show you three investigations. I want to show you two recipients. And then I want to show you one purpose. All right? That's kind of how we're going to start this off. All right? So there's going to be four introductions, three investigations, two recipients, and one purpose uh, for this first initial sentence right out of the gate. And so beginning with the four introductions... I want to introduce you to Luke as a book, all right? So let me start by introducing to you the Gospel of Luke, the book in the Bible. There are, in fact, four Gospels. Uh, There are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each is essentially a biographical sketch of Jesus, and they're all true, emphasizing different aspects and facts of Jesus' person and his work. And so Matthew was written to those who are Jewish in background, Mark was written to those who are Romans, John was written to those who are Greek, and Luke is written to those who are Gentile, or simply not used to a Jewish background of reading the Bible, or going to synagogue, uh, or going to the temple, or things like that. So they do tell the same story of Jesus, but each in their kind of own way. And what we see in Luke's gospel is that it is the longest of the four gospels. It has 1,151 verses in it, and of those 1,151 verses, 568 verses are literally just the words of Jesus. And so Luke is just quoting, nearly half of the book is just quoting verbatim the words of Jesus and what what he actually said. And so to read Luke, and I want you to read Luke as we continue to walk through this, that's a prayer of mine, is for you to just read Luke for yourself. To read Luke takes, on average, for the average reader, about two hours sitting down and reading it from from beginning to end. And so what I would love for us to do 
practically speaking, if you were to take 15 to 20 minutes a day, just 15 to 20 minutes a day, you could read through the entire book of Luke in a week's sitting uh, or in a week's time. And so if you were to do that and just commit 15 to 20 minutes a day just reading through the book of Luke, by the time we end this series, you will have read the book of Luke nearly 100 times, give or take a few. That's if you just do it 15 to 20 minutes a day. You'll read it about 100 times by the time that we finish this series. And I want you to do that because I want you to get to know this book. I want you to get to know it. I want you to get to know the purpose behind it, the details within it. I want this book to become a friend of yours. And if you're kind of thinking, like, that sounds like a lot of reading, like, I don't know if I could read it a hundred times in the next two years or so, uh, it reminds me of a friend of mine that I had down in Tennessee, and I say friend of mine, he was a a much older uh, man in our church who was well into his 80s. Um, but it, I remember talking to him and just kind of hearing a little bit more about his story. And one of the things was in his story, his salvation story, was he was a salesman uh, back in the day. And he was in San Francisco and he was staying in a hotel. And he had a Playboy magazine with him. And he was going to set it down on the nightstand. And when, instead of setting it on the nightstand, he was like, you know what? I've got a friend coming over. Maybe I should put it in the drawer. And so he opens the drawer and there was a Bible inside the drawer. And so he was like, huh, interesting. Let me set the Playboy magazine next to the Bible. Um, And that kind of just stirred something in him in that moment. And so later that evening, uh, when he opened the drawer, he chose to read the Bible instead of the Playboy magazine. And so he opened it up and he just began reading. And he even told me, he was like, that night when I started reading through the book of Luke, he's like, I met Jesus and Jesus saved me. And I was like, that's, that's fantastic. That's amazing. He was like, I remember specifically it being Friday the 13th. And for whatever reason, he was like, because it was Friday the 13th, Jesus saved me. I committed to reading 13 chapters of the Bible every day. And, and so you fast forward 40, 50 years, he stayed true to that commitment to where he actually told me, and, and if you actually read 13 chapters of the Bible each day, you'll read through the Bible, like, Front to cover, Genesis to to, uh, Revelation, you'll read the whole thing in three months if you read 13 chapters a day. And so he has read, and this was actually before we left to go plant in Miami, I had asked him, I was like, how many times have you read through the Bible? And he was like, actually, I've just finished up my 342nd time reading the entire Bible front to back. I'm like, that's phenomenal, all right? Like, there's, you can do it. All right, we're just saying 15, 20 minutes a day, read through the book of Luke, you'll be able to do this, all right? And, it's, and, and I'll tell you this, that will probably be the primary thing that transforms our church over the next couple of years, is just doing a commitment like this, a spiritual discipline like this. And so that's what we want you to do. We want you to mark notes. We want you to highlight it. We want you to mark it up, make it a friend, get to know Luke's gospel. So that's Luke as a gospel. Luke as an author. Second introduction. Let me introduce you to Luke as an author. As we read his introductory words, you might notice that he doesn't tell us his name right out of the gate. So how do we know that he wrote this book? As you read through many books in the New Testament, they literally start off with who wrote it. You know, especially the Apostle Paul, that's his MO. Whenever he opens a letter or starts writing a letter, he says, hi, I'm the Apostle Paul. This is who I am, and this is who I'm writing to. He addresses it and addresses himself within it. And so Luke doesn't do that. But what we do know is that Luke wrote both the book of Luke and Acts. And specifically in Acts, we see that there are moments throughout Acts where the author of Acts starts saying these things like, we, we went here, we went there, we saw this. So he's giving first-person Um, um, he's revealing the fact that he was there and engaging in these travels and these um, journeys with the Apostle Paul. Later to mention then that the Apostle Paul actually says that Luke was with me and that Luke is the one recording these things. And so we, we know that Luke authored Acts. And then with him authoring Acts, we know that Acts also begins with 
to Theophilus, the exact same introduction as Luke has. And so theologians have been able to put these two books together as literally a prequel and a sequel, written by the same guy with the same Greek style of writing um, that is impeccable. I mean, Luke is, as we'll see here in a minute, uh, very educated. Uh, But he has incredible Greek, and, and the themes and the structure of both Luke and Acts, and even the same themes that he draws on with the role of the Holy Spirit in both of them, are very similar to the point that they're able to see that these two books were authored by the same person. And because we know that Acts was authored by Luke, we are also then able to see that the book of Luke was authored by him. Additionally, all of the early church fathers in the second and third centuries, ones like Justin Martyr and Arrhenius and Tertullian and Clement of Alexandria, all agreed and all said that Luke wrote the book of Luke and that he also wrote the book of Acts. And he actually wrote these around 62 AD and 63 AD, which is about 30 years after Jesus's death, burial, and ascension, his resurrection and ascension. And so this is a very strategic window in which Luke has in order to record these based on what he is kind of drawing on his purpose for writing these. Another thing about this author um, that you don't typically hear or know is a lot of times when it comes to the New Testament, who gets attributed with contributing the most to the New Testament? Paul. Absolutely. Why? Because he authored 13, some argue 14, letters or books of the New Testament. All right? The reason why there's discrepancies is because no one really knows who authored Hebrews. Some say it was Paul. If it was Paul, then he wrote 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. However, in verses and sentences, Luke and Acts contribute more than the 13 or 14 letters of the New Testament. So this author actually provides to us more of the New Testament than any other writer that is actually out there. And so that's just something to know. Like, Paul is a guy who loves words. He's very verbose. He uses a lot of them to say he takes his time. Like, that's my kind of guy, is one who uses a lot of words when he gives his message. He doesn't give you the Cliff Notes version. He gives a lot of historical details behind it. So that is Luke as an author. What about Luke as a man? I want to introduce you to him as a man. He's probably not a Jew, uh, didn't grow up going to temple and Sabbath keeping and, and going to synagogue and reading the Old Testament and waiting for the Messiah. His name is a Gentile name, which means he's non-Jewish by background and heritage. Luke or Lucas in its original language is a Gentile name. So if you're like me, He didn't grow up going to church. He didn't grow up meeting with God's people and reading God's word. He grew up in some other sort of home in that way. But he's mentioned expressly three times in the New Testament, and he's referred to in an amazing way each of the times. He's paid one of the highest compliments in the New Testament. Paul says on one occasion in 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. This is a time when the Apostle Paul is imprisoned. Uh, and, and if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, like danger follows him. All right. So he's constantly in danger, constantly being shipwrecked, constantly being bitten by snakes, constantly uh, being stoned, constantly being lashed out to. You know, he's, he's always in danger. And at one point, he literally says, like, everyone's gone. Like, everyone's abandoned me except for Luke. Like, Luke is still with me. And so I can just imagine this type of loyal friend who is constantly with him, who's visiting him in the prison, saying, like, Paul, how are you doing? Like, how are you doing? Like, what can I do? How can I pray? How can I tend to you right now? Like, I'm, um, as we'll see here in Colossians 4.14, it actually gives him the title of his profession. It says that he is a physician. Uh, who needed a physician more than the Apostle Paul? Uh, and, and so he's possibly also his personal physician. But we know Luke is a doctor because of what it says in Colossians 4.14. He's a medical doctor. And I know some of you are wondering, like, what is the role of, of science and medicine in, in, like, the Christian faith? Luke is a great example. Like, sometimes goofy Christians will say things like, you don't need to go to the doctor. You don't need medical insurance. All you need to do is pray and have faith and trust God and, and he'll heal you. 
And then they'll go to places like Luke and say, see, like Jesus healed people. And they'll go to Acts and say, see, the Holy Spirit heals people and does miracles. And the irony there is that both of those were authored by a medical doctor, a medical professional. Bizarre oversight on their point. The doctor's point was, was not to mention that you don't need a doctor, but the doctor's point is to mention that Jesus is the great physician. And sometimes he does miraculously heal, and other times he works through other physicians. That's why uh, with Kelsey's cancer, like we asked you as a church to pray for her. And also, we scheduled surgeries and treatments because we believe in that as well. Like We, we know that the Lord has skilled people in those ways. In our Harbor Network family of churches this week, um, I got a message from one of our newest church uh, planters uh, that his name's Brett Johnson and his wife is Katie Johnson. Uh, we got like an emergency kind of like, hey, you need to pray for Katie Johnson like now. This was like on, on Wednesday. Uh, she had a headache on Tuesday and really wasn't sure what was going on. And so they eventually went in and did some scans and found that she had a brain aneurysm. And they, they were going to be scheduling like emergency surgery on Thursday. And so on Wednesday, the message went out, like everyone pray. Uh, we're pl- praying for like the best results, that God would heal her. But even through the surgeries, there's going to be like a, a, a smaller invasive surgery to start off with on Thursday and then a lengthier, longer one down the road as well. Uh, but the initial one, they knew there were going to be complications of probably loss of hearing, uh, possible seizures, several other things that were going to come on. So we were, just, we were just praying. And so on Thursday, she goes in and she has one more scan before they actually go into the surgery. And they do the scan, no aneurysm. Like just no aneurysm. They're like, we, 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 it's just, I love those moments where you've got the smartest people in the room who have no idea what to say about it. Like that's a beautiful thing. And so... God, in some moments, goes the longer route of of healing you through surgeries and treatments and whatever it might look like. And then there are other moments where God just says, I'm just going to do it. Like, I'm not going to put you through those things. I'm just going to miraculously heal you right now. And that's what he did for Katie Johnson this week. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so that's how God works at times. And so Luke was a man who studied medicine and science and was formally educated and that's what, honestly, like, that's what Christians need to do. Like, we, we should be educated. Like, it's okay to be educated. We don't, like, to live by faith does not mean that you just dumb down yourself and you rely on God for everything. Like, that's not what it means to live by faith. And that's not who Luke was in his, in his role. Um, you may be graduating medical school and in the midst of residency or practicing already. And we would say to that, praise God. Like, praise God. I think what the world needs more are, like, holy doctors who pray for you. Like, the, the combination of the two. Like, we're going to do everything we can to treat you and, at the same time, pray for you. Honestly, for us, like, that, that has been the healings for us in this season is as we've been walking through our treatments, we're also kind of going to them and saying, like, can you interpret this medical jargon for us? Like, can you help us identify, like, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> the amount of pictures we send, what is this? What's going on here? And, and them just being able to say, like, from a medical professional standpoint, this is what's going on. And then at the same time to say, we're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you. Like, that's a beautiful thing. And that's the kind of person that Luke is here in the scriptures, especially in this time where he's a learned, educated man in a day where, honestly, maybe only 10% of the people are actually literate, are actually literate. And so Luke is, is an interesting case in what we typically don't see when we're walking through the Scriptures. We typically show how Peter and the disciples, these fishermen who are, as they say, uneducated men, are, doing, are changing the world. Well, then that kind of then begs the question, well, what about those who are educated? Can they change the world? Like, can they offer anything into this? And Luke shows us that that absolutely is a possibility. To be able to use your intellect, to be able to use your education, to be able to use uh, your skills and your life skills to be able to serve Christ and the cause of Christ in everything. So that's Luke as a man. I want to show you Luke as a saint. 
Luke as a saint. And I'm not going like Catholic here, like it's like Saint Luke, you know, kind of the I'm saying like Luke as a believer, Luke as a Christian. What was spoken of him? Because he doesn't say anything about himself. But what was spoken of him? Now, outside of his profession and authorship, we don't know a lot about Luke. Um, but there was one thing that we came across, or that I came across in studying, and this is actually an ancient fragment that was found uh, on a commentary about 100 years after Luke's life. So about 100 years after his life, he, wrote, he authored his book. There's a commentary written on his book. And so this is pulled out of that ancient uh, commentary on Luke. And if you were to look it up, it's literally Luke, ancient commentary on Luke. Like that's just what it's titled. Don't know who authored it, but that's what it says. This is the only thing that we have kind of a snapshot into his life. It says, Indeed, Luke was an Antiochian Syrian, which just means he lived in Antioch or was from Antioch. That's, he talks about that. And I, and I kind of find that interesting because in Acts 13, especially when the church literally just shifted operations from Jerusalem to Antioch, to where Antioch became like the center of church planting. It became the center of the gospel. It became the center of the movement of really getting the gospel uh, dispersed out everywhere. And so that's where it's saying Luke is, is ultimately from. He's an Antiochian Syrian. It also says that he's a doctor by profession and a disciple of the apostles. So Luke tells us that he was not an eyewitness but he was trained by those who were. He was discipled by those who were. So Luke never met Jesus face to face. But he met those who met Jesus face to face. That he was discipled by those. Luke is, is, is essentially saying he's kind of like us. He is a follower of the followers of Jesus. All right? So that's something that's good for us to know. Because, again, this is a guy who's not going based off of Thomas, who literally stuck his hands in Jesus' wounds. He's not someone who was there when Jesus was actually crucified. Now, he was alive during the time, but he was not a believer and not around when that was going on. I would almost say that he probably, if he is from Antioch, never even heard of Jesus until the gospel actually got to Antioch, and then he actually became a believer at that point. But again, this is conjecture. This is outside of Scripture. A disciple of apostles. It then says later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom. Again, that kind of goes back to that one verse in 2 Timothy 4.11 where he's like, Luke alone is with me. This is a loyal friend who was with him until Paul literally died. And then the next line says, serving the Lord blamelessly. Like, just make God say that of all of us, right? Interesting enough, this ancient fragment of commentary also says that he died at the age of 84. I mean, like, very specific, that he died at the age of 84. Now, that's twice as long as the life expectancy of guys in that day. So if you were to ask him, like, how good of a doctor was he, he was a good doctor, all right? Like, he not only cared for others, but cared for himself in such a way that he lived to the age of 84. Like, that's good in our day, right? And so for him to be able to, if, again, if that's true, for him to be able to live to that day, that's, that's amazing. And died at the age of 84, and I love this line, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. And that God would allow us to live in such a way that long after we're gone, hundreds of years after we're gone, that whatever's recorded of our life, that it would say that. That they serve the Lord blamelessly into old age, full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. And honestly, like out of the introductions, that's, that's my hope and prayer for us as we walk through the book of Luke and as we see all that's recorded around the life of Jesus Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. All of his teachings, all of his miracles, all of his work, that as we see that, that it would so change us and transform us that we would serve him blamelessly and be full of the Holy Spirit. So those are the four introductions. Let me show you now the three investigations that Luke de dove into. And these will, these will move a little bit quicker. But I want to I walk you through verses 1 through 3. He says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, 
and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. So Luke uses three primary ways to, to essentially collect his data, to conduct his investigation, to, to organize his research. And he says that he gained his information about Jesus that came together as the gospel of Luke from these three sources. And so many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. That's, that's written documents, okay? And then just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, he's interviewing eyewitnesses. So written documents, eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us. So that's the oral tradition that we'll get to here in a minute. So there are three ways that he gathers his information, and it's just a massive amount of work. It's a massive amount of time. It's a massive amount of, of money as well, as we'll see here in a minute. But the first one I want to look at is just the oral tradition, because I think these kind of each um, um, elevate in, in the importance of them. Oral tradition, in a day when, again, many of them were illiterate, and, and especially in the rural areas, perhaps only 5 to 10 percent of the people were actually literate, and that's of the men. Most of the women were illiterate uh, because they were not allowed to study in that regard. Someone would be designated as the leader and sort of the curator of that place for the person or the person, the facts, and the data of the history. So there was always someone who was essentially like, you are the person who's going to pass down all of the knowledge that we have. And you're going to be the curator of it. You're going to be the historian. You're going to be the theologian. You're going to be each of these things. And, and they would then pass those down. And so what he would do is he would go and he would interview each of those oral traditionals. Like he would go and ask them, I need all the information that you have that you're passing down to these communities. I need to know what you know. And so will you please deliver them to me as well? So he's, off, like he's walking through that. Secondly, he says that other things are written down. By this point, he has the Gospel of Matthew that's already been written. He has the Gospel of Mark that has already been written. Paul has already written some of his letters of the New Testament that are ascribed to him. And there are also others who have probably had someone um, transcribe if they were illiterate or write down themselves their testimonies. Testimonies like the Jesus healed me, Jesus cast out a demon out of me, I saw him risen from the, from the death, I, I was there for a miracle, it's all true, it's fact, it happened. So he's going and just compiling everything that's written. Or he's going into these cities and sitting down with the written documents and taking notes and making notes. Or you know, he's, he's looking for the copier and scanning them, If obviously that's not true. Um, but that's exactly what he's doing, is he's gathering the written documents in order to compile for himself a document, something that he can um, reference. And then thirdly, he compiles all of this and he meets with the eyewitnesses. So you've got to understand that he's going to the eyewitnesses. He's going to, hey, Peter, like you, were, you were there. What was it like? <laughs> going to, to Jesus' brothers, James and Jude. Hey, I, I know it says that Jesus never sinned. You were with him, and if anybody would know whether he sinned or not, it's going to be you, all right, because you were his brothers. He's going to Mary. Mary, did, did you know <laughs> that your baby boy would someday, no, I'm not going to go there, but what, what, like, was it like the song? Like, did you actually know that you were going to birth God? Like, was that, was that on your mind when the angel showed up? Like, how did it go when you told Joseph, hey, you're a virgin, pregnant, girlfriend, um, yeah, something interesting happened. Like, how did that go? Like, he's, he's interviewing the eyewitnesses that are going, that have met Jesus and know Jesus. And so this is years. This is massive amounts of money. This is him going from town to town, putting the entire narrative together, talking to the eyewitnesses, taking the written documents, listening to the oral tradition. And Luke has decided it's time. It's time to write it all down. Though there are other Gospels like Matthew and Mark, Luke feels like he has something to contribute, something to contribute to the narrative. And so he records the orderly account, and he addresses it to what I believe are two recipients. All of these investigations, the research, the compiling of documents, and written orderly accounts 
are addressed to most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent Theophilus. I tried pulling a last-minute Hail Mary and changing Ezra's name to Theophilus. Um, it was either like the week of or we might have been in the hospital. Um, I don't remember, but Kelsey shot it down like immediately. And, uh, and, and I'm now thinking, knowing Ezra for six years, that it would have been perfect because he thinks he's most excellent in everything. Um, so I, I, I just want to go back and say that I was prophetic in that moment and, and knew what he should have been called. Um, but anyways, this is written to most excellent Theophilus. Why all the trouble? Why, why do all this work for this one guy? Because again, you've you got to talk. The largest contribution to the New Testament, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, written to one person. Why go through all of this? First of all, I just think it's stunning and wonderful that the longest book of the New Testament is written to one person. I, I really do find that stunning. Like, does God love the world? Yes. Does God love all the nations? Yes. Does God love cities and communities? Yes. Does God love individuals? Yes. Like, yes, he does. He, this is not just something where he deals with churches. He also deals with individuals. He is personal with individuals. And so I just love that this is kind of pulling this out where a lot of like the letters in, uh, that Paul writes, it's like to the churches in Galatia. You know, so that's like, well, all right, he's talking to a bunch of people, all right, or to the church in Ephesus. Well, this is a group of people. So this might not necessarily be specific for me. Where this is Theophilus. I'm going to record an orderly account of Jesus and uh, Theophilus. I'm going to record an orderly account of the church. All right, uh, God's two greatest loves, Jesus and the church. Like, I mean, that's, this is what he is writing to. And he is writing them, or is what he's writing about. And he is writing them to Theophilus. So who is he? And why is this such an important thing? Now, there's conjecture here. Some believe that he's possibly a Jewish priest. Others believe that he could be Paul's lawyer. And Paul is, is asking um, Luke, who is, is educated and articulate, hey, um, you need to get all of this information to Theophilus because he's my lawyer. Like, again, that's some people that believe that as well. I think, personally, um, that, that the, the, the weightiest and the, the one that makes the most sense is that he is actually a Roman governmental official. And the reason why we land there is ultimately because, we say we, I'm not saying we, like I, uh, the reason why I think I land there is because of his title, Most Excellent. It's actually mentioned multiple times at the end of, of, of Acts, uh, again, Luke writing it, um, that he is talking to Roman governmental officials, and he refers to them as most excellent. And so by giving him that title, I believe that pulls in his, his, his status or his title of a Roman governmental official. Again, I think it's Roman in the sense, and not Jewish, because of Theophilus' name as well. That it is actually a Gentile name, not a Jewish name. That means simply lover of God, or one who loves God. And so I believe he's writing this uh, to this new converted or newly converted Roman governmental official who now loves God, and because he loves God, in his position and in his title... There's a lot at risk here. There's a lot at risk. And so he needs to know for sure, is Jesus legit? Is the church legit? Are all of these things actually true? Because if it is, it's going to have implications for my entire life. For my entire life. And so I believe like that's, that's, that's why this is happening. I'll show you a little bit more of that in a minute. Now, I said two recipients. All right, so I said Theophilus is one of the recipients that is obvious in the Scriptures. But other theologians have also pulled in the idea of lover of God or Theophilus as a general term for anybody who is a lover of God or might become a lover of God. So the way that I look at that is we can pull in two things. Yes, absolutely, just like Galatians is written to the churches in Galatia. It's not directly written to the district church in Indianapolis. But is Galatians, the book, 
written to the churches in Galatia beneficial for us as the Word of God here in Indianapolis? Absolutely. Same here in the sense of Luke and Acts written to Theophilus, who is a lover of God. It is directly written to him, but indirectly written to us for those who are lovers of God or might become lovers of God in order to be able to see the acts of Jesus and the acts of the church. And so I think absolutely, not only is it intended for him, but it is intended for us under the inspired word of God and under God's ultimate plan of getting his word out to the nations and beyond. So those are the two recipients. And the last one, and again, I think the, the point for the book of Acts, or the book of Luke, the point, the one purpose, is that you may have certainty. Like that's what he's, that's what he's essentially telling to Theophilus. I'm, I'm writing this orderly account. I'm giving you the, 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 the three investigations. Here's where I compiled all of the data from. And not only that, I'm writing it straight to you, and I'm writing it so that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty. Why does Theophilus need certainty and assurance? Again, he's probably a new convert to Christianity. Here he's wealthy, prominent, affluent, significant man who becomes a Christian. And what he's wondering is, is it really true? Because he has a lot to lose in, in uh, publicly declaring himself to be Christian. Because in that day, Caesar was Lord. Caesar was Lord. So, so to say anything else would be blasphemy against their law and, and rightful, uh, justifiable death for you. To not say Caesar is Lord and to say someone else is Lord. Caesar was Lord. And so as a Christian, Theophilus would declare, not anymore. Jesus is Lord. In that day, he would say, my highest allegiance is to my nation. And upon meeting Jesus, he would have to say, no, not anymore. My highest allegiance is to Jesus' kingdom. And as a governor, he would need to say, all religions are welcome. The worship of all gods is equal. This is where you get the Roman God system. And now he would say, no, Jesus alone is God and Savior. So this would get him in great trouble with his boss, Caesar. This would get him fired. This could get him in lots of legal trouble, maybe even imprisoned. I mean, this could cost him everything. Because it was not safe to profess Jesus as Lord it actually wasn't safe to profess that until 325 A.D. when Emperor Constantine legalized it as the state religion of the Roman Empire. So that's, at least, that's almost 300 years later. And so this is something that's very important for him to have assurance and to have certainty because he knows what's at stake. He knows what's at cost here. And so here's this man wrestling, perhaps as some of you are, with his faith. Do I really believe in Jesus do I love Jesus? Do I belong to Jesus? Am I willing to go public with this? Am I willing to say Jesus is Lord? There's a lot at stake. And so Theophilus actually contracts this out. He hires, he funds, he supports Luke, a fellow Gentile, an educated and articulate man who has access to the apostles and the eyewitnesses and the disciples. And he says, Luke, I need you to go find the truth. Go get the facts. Go find out exactly what happened around this man, Jesus, and give me a full report. And that's exactly what Luke does. Now, why does certainty matter? Well, it matters because of what Hebrews 11.1 1 shows us. And this is what I want to close with. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Like, that's what faith is. Faith is two things. It's the assurance. Like, I am, I am sure. I am certain of things that I'm hoping for. They've not, even, they've not even happened yet. It's also the conviction. I am convinced of things that I've never seen. So, Theophilus, who's not met Jesus personally... Luke, who's not met Jesus personally, at this point, they're not walking by sight of Jesus. They're walking by faith in Jesus. They were not there. And so certainty, and this is why I love the book of Luke and the book of Acts, is because it puts us into the category. 
of the author. This is a man who, who is not just saying, like when he at one point says, like, I disbelieve. Well, his disbelief would not be warranted off of, like, I was there and, and experienced it and didn't think it was legit. Like, his, his disbelief is not similar to Judas Iscariot, who disbelief is just straight out rejection. Like, this is someone who might have said, I disbelieve, but I actually want to make sure. And so instead of just disbelieving and throwing it off, like today, it would be just, to me, honestly, it's just silly for someone when they first hear Jesus or, or first hear the story of Jesus to just say, I just, I just don't believe it's true. I'm sorry, are you an eyewitness? Like, did you read the written documents? Did you talk to Mary? Did you hear the oral traditions? Were you there? So don't just like half-heartedly just say, well, I just don't believe it. And that's why the book of Luke is such a gift to us by God because it's from someone who did the work that we right now don't have the opportunity to go and do. He had a strategic window of time to be able to provide the credibility that he needed to author a book inspired by God. Which is, there's written documents, eyewitnesses. I might not have seen them, but they did. And I wrote down their stories. And that's able to grant for us, by the grace of God, to grant for us certainty and assurance and a conviction that is unwavering that is our faith. That is our faith. And honestly, this is, again, my hope for us, is that as we walk through this, it does one primary thing, is that as we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it is building and strengthening that faith. It's building and strengthening that faith. Because you want to know what kind of people change the world? The kind of people who change the world are the kind of people who have an unwavering faith and conviction that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he, says he's, what he said he did. And because of that, I'm going to go live my life this way. I'm going to live my life this way. And the world's going to be changed by it. The world's going to be changed by it. One of our church planting networks, the Summit Collaborative, has a vision to plant a thousand churches in a generation. A thousand churches in a generation. And this was something that came out of J.D. Greer's mouth about 20 years ago when, when he kind of started pastoring the Summit Church in Denver, in Denver, in uh, Raleigh-Durham. And he was just up on stage at one moment, and he just said, kind of just flew out of his mouth, and he said apparently a bunch of their vision just happens when he's off the cuff and it flows out of his mouth. And at one point, he said, we're, we're going to plant a 1,000 churches in, in a generation. So he's thinking the next 40, 50 years, we're going to plant a 1,000 churches. And it took them at least four to five years to even plant the first church. Just one church. It took them like four to five years. Now, the Summit Church by itself has planted 502 churches. 502 churches in 20 years. So as he shared with us last week when I was out there, he's like, we're, we're right on track. We're right on track. But at the same time, it has become exponential to where they'll probably blow that number out of the water. And, and that kind of got me thinking, like, again, this, this is a church that, now they, they are a mega church. I mean, they're for, running 14,000 people, multiple locations, et cetera, tons of resources. I'm not going to say that that makes it easier to plant a church, um, but it makes it easier to plant a church. It does. What I was kind of thinking for us, and I know like for the other elders in the room, I haven't really talked about this with them, so it is what it is. I would love for us as a church to commission a thousand people in our generation. Now, when I say commission a thousand people in our generation, that might be full-time overseas missions. That might be to go plant another church. That might be in a full-time type of missionary position here in 
um, uh, Indianapolis. That might be on staff in our church as we continue to grow and whatever it might look like. That could also be short-term missions overseas. But the, the main thing is that as we see Luke record this and the spread of the gospel, because it's not just waiting to Acts and seeing the spread of the gospel there. The gospel spreads through the life of Jesus Christ that we're going to see. And that even in his three years of ministry, he's commissioning the disciples to do things. As we are being filled with the Holy Spirit through this process, and as our faith is being strengthened through this process, I want us to be trained and equipped to be able to go and to be commissioned and to be able to do for others what Luke has done here in gathering the information, being trained and equipped to be able to orderly write out the gospel message and to be able to deliver it to someone else so that they may have assurance of their faith to be able to then make the decisions in their life that they need to make for the cause of Christ. Like, that's what the Bible is calling us to do. And I love that Luke, being a medical professional, a doctor, was willing to not let that be the only thing that defined his life, but leveraged it in order to continue spreading and advancing the gospel in his life. And we all have that opportunity to do that. Whether you're a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a social worker, uh, whether you fly around in helicopters, like whatever it is that you do, we get to leverage what God has provided for us for the sake of the gospel and the spread of Jesus Christ. That's what Luke did. And that's the opportunity that we have. And so right now you might be thinking like, well, that sounds great for, for some. My prayer and my hope is that it is for all of us in this room, for all of us to be built up in that way over the next couple of years. As we come to this time of communion, I actually want to jump ahead to Luke 22. This doesn't mean we're like skipping the other 21 verses or 21 chapters, so don't, don't think that. But I want you to see his, his orderly account of this Last Supper as we are invited to this same meal. He says this in Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying there is, is at the actual Last Supper, that's the last time that Jesus partook of the meal that we partake of every week. That was the last time. Because what he wants to do is, is as the gospel spreads over the next 2,000 years, he will not enter in and celebrate this meal with us until all of the believers have become believers and have been called home. Like he's not leaving anybody out. So he's saying, I, I will not partake of this again until it is all fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now they barely knew what was happening in that moment when he was giving them this, this illustration of what was about to happen at his death. That his body was about to be broken like the bread and that his blood was about to be shed like the cup that was poured out. And the way that he references himself throughout, we'll see, is that he references himself as the bread of life. Like if you need to be full and you need to be filled up, and you need to have substance, and you need to have something that sustains you through the weariness. He's saying, it's me. It's me. When, when you find yourselves wrestling, when you find yourselves just tired, when you find yourselves weary and emotionally exhausted, and whatever it might be, when you find yourselves wondering whether or not it's true or, or Whatever, like when you find yourself just struggling through, 
Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a meal that is a symbol and illustration of what you get access to all the time. Like this, this meal, he later says, like it doesn't fill you up. Eat at home for that. But when you partake of this meal, this fills you up spiritually. This strengthens you. To do the work that I am calling you to do, you're going to need this energy drink. <laughs> you're going to need this protein bar. And these two things are going to provide for you the fuel that you need. And that's what we celebrate when we come to communion every single week. That's what we commemorate. That's what we remember. Is that we're not just looking back and saying, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross to forgive me of my sins. But we're also drawing on that, the energy that we need in our spiritual walk to be able to take that message to those who are dying and going to hell right now. And we share the good news with them so that they get to be able to come into the family as well and have certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. So let's go ahead and stand together. If you don't have the elements, I'll invite you to go ahead and go back and grab them. As we walk through this, this book of Luke, <clears throat> it just reminds me of the thankfulness that we have for a God who has inspired these men 2,000 years ago to do the work. I mean, this was, this was no small task. But to do this work so that we today, followers of the followers of the followers of the followers of Jesus, that we have access to be able to see what they saw to be able to read what they read and to be able to witness what they witnessed. And Jesus provides this for us in this way. He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's be filled up with this meal so that we can pour ourselves out as we continue to advance the gospel. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at